Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Yesterday, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, visited the Governor-General in Canberra, dissolved the Parliament and paved the way for an election in 40 days' time. Yes, May 21. It's a Saturday. That's the day we'll go to the polls. So get ready for quite a long six-week campaign. Here on The Briefing, we're going to keep you across all the important developments without drowning you in the political noise. So along the way, you'll get the inside running from our very own veteran politics reporter, Annika Smethurst. There is an increasing sort of dissatisfaction with the major parties and you will see more independents. Whether it's just going to be independents winning in every seat they run in, I just don't think that's going to happen because people are still pretty wedded to the major parties. So in today's briefing, Annika will explain what happens next now that the election has been called and we go into official campaign mode. That is our briefing. First, here are the headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Monday, April 11. So both political leaders have already begun the hard sell. Here is what the PM Scott Morrison led with right after he fired the starter's gun. Our government is not perfect. We've never claimed to be, but we are up front. And you may see some flaws, but you can also see what we have achieved for Australia in incredibly difficult times. Yeah, really honing in on the struggles that we've had through COVID and the fact that Australia's done quite well. Uh, he defended his government's record over the last three years. Anthony Albanese is looking at a longer lens, though, because the coalition has been in for almost nine years in total. Here's what he said as he fired his first attack yesterday. Our time to seize the opportunities that are before us. Our time to create a better future where no one is held back and no one is left behind. I'm ready. We are ready. And Australia is ready for a better future. So that's Albanese using that famous Labor catch cry I'm sure you've heard before. It is time. Of course, that was made famous by Gough Whitlam back in the 70s. Yeah, so Morrison becomes the first Prime Minister since John Howard to serve out a full term um, when he ended it yesterday. So that's quite interesting. There's been so much instability with Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Mm. Abbott, (laughs) <laughs> Turnbull Morrison. So he served a full term. So um, hats off for that. Now, it's interesting to see where the prime ministers go, where the senior ministers go, because that gives you a sense where they're really focused on winning seats. So the prime minister yesterday went straight to Nowra on the south coast of New South Wales, which is in the seat of Gilmore which uh, the former New South Wales minister, uh, Andrew Constance, is trying to win. Yeah, the uh, ALP, Albanese, headed to northern Tasmania, went to Launceston, and he's expected to begin his campaign in the seats of Bass and Braddon. Of course, they will be spending both leaders a lot of time in Queensland. There are quite a few seats up here which hang in the balance. So I just can't wait for that, Tom. (laughs) Uh, Next six weeks are going to be a wild ride for all of us. Takes me back to um, Scott Morrison on the beach at the Gold Coast running into Mick Fanning's <laughs> mum and um, giving a really cringeworthy video, but a lot of people seem to love it. Let's get into the polling and the latest news poll published in the Australian newspaper today has Scott Morrison polling just ahead of Anthony Albanese's preferred Prime Minister, 44 to 39. Anthony Albanese had pulled level with the PM on this front back in February, but since then has started to slide back a bit. Yeah, it's a slightly similar story with a two-party preferred figure as well. We're finding that the gap between the two major parties has tightened again. 
So it's 53 to 47. So Labor's still ahead, but it was at 55-45. And this is the same level of support that Labor had at the start of the 2019 election campaign. Support for minor parties and independents, this is where it's going to get really interesting. It's at 27%. Annika Smethurst is joining us on The Briefing today talking about this very thing, about the major role that independents are likely going to play at this election. Yeah, Clive Palmer's polling at 4%, which is a fairly big number. The Greens are at 10%, One Nation at 3%, and Others, which is all those other independents, including David Pocock, who we spoke to last week, they're at 10% for the third poll in a row. So you've got those independents polling at the same level as the Greens. To other news now, and Pope Francis has called for a truce in Ukraine. Let an Easter truce begin, and let us avoid reloading weapons and fighting again. The pontiff spoke at the end of Palm Sunday to about 50,000 people in St Peter's Square, and it was the first time since 2019 that the public could attend the service because of COVID restrictions. Meanwhile, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited Ukraine at the weekend. There's an amazing video of Johnson walking with Vladimir Zelensky triumphantly through the streets of Kyiv. Everyone is in camo, including all of the military bodyguards around them who are holding machine guns. I'm sure sweating bullets. That is the most <laughs> intense security mission that you can imagine. Everyone seemed to look pretty, you know, stressed and protected, except for Boris Johnson, who was just strolling down the street wearing his trademark dark blue suit and tie. It looked like he didn't have a bulletproof vest under his shirt either. So it was, um, yeah, Boris Johnson just really being himself as per usual. Here's what he had to say there. Defence intelligence that we had suggested that the Russians believed that Ukraine could be engulfed in a matter of days and that Kiev would fall in hours uh, to their armies. How wrong they were. So Johnson also pledged more funding from the UK, which has already topped more than £700 million. That's equivalent to about $1.2 billion Aussie dollars. And more than 400,000 people have turned out to watch the Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne over the weekend. The four-day total was a record number and the event drew more spectators than any race weekend in the sport's history. Monaco's Charles Leclerc took the chequered flag in his Ferrari, the first time Ferrari has won in Australia since 2007. We've got a very strong car, a very reliable car too. Australia's Daniel Ricciardo finished sixth just behind his teammate Lando Norris. A fifth and a sixth is a massive result, obviously, for us so far this year. If you would have said this in Bahrain, I probably would have laughed sarcastically, so very happy uh, with this progress. The F1 now rolls on to Italy for the next round on April 22. Yeah, it was great to see Melbourne literally roaring into action over the weekend because if you think back to 2020, Um, The Grand Prix was meant to be held right as COVID was engulfing the country and they had Mm. to cancel it right at the last minute. It was very ugly. And for me, it was very emblematic in sort of my memories of the darkest parts of COVID. So it's taken two years to get that event up and running again. And people seem very keen to get trackside and um, really living it up around Melbourne, not just at the track, but all around the city. So excellent to see Melbourne doing what it does best. 
And history was made in space over the weekend. The first all-private team of astronauts arrived at the International Space Station. They're on a week-long mission. It's a four-man team who paid around $70 million each for their seats. <laughs> um, they were selected by the US private company Axiom and they lifted off from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in a SpaceX launched Falcon 9 rocket. They've uh, now docked with the space station. They're going to spend uh, time in space doing experiments. Uh, they've even had to train to kind of be astronauts. They've mm. had to do something like 45 weeks of training and it's had to be exactly the same standard. Even though these guys are older, one of them, they won't even tell us how old he is. They say that he's somewhere in his 70s. Wow. So that to me means late 70s. But good on him. They look like super fit dudes. Yeah, the youngest of them was in his 50s. So yeah, sort of older guys. I guess, you know, what do you get the baby boomer who has everything? <laughs> Flight to space, I guess. All right, coming up next, Annika Smithers. So as you've heard, the Prime Minister has finally called the election. So this means the date is confirmed and we are officially in the election campaign. But what does that all mean? How does this period of time actually work? To explain it, we have Annika Smith-Hurst with us. Annika, thanks for joining us. What are the mechanics of this? Can you explain what happened when the PM called the election? So when the Prime Minister calls the election, he has to go off to the Governor-General, who's the Queen's representative in Australia. The Governor-General lives in Canberra, just up the road from where the Prime Minister lives. What he does is walk in and basically say, can you dissolve Parliament? Can you end it? We're calling quits on this Parliament. So he goes out there and he says, get rid of us all, call the election. Uh, they issue the writs and then there's a minimum of 33 days that we have to have a campaign. And that's really to sell the message. It, it's an actual structural thing that says they've got 33 days to get out there, sell their message, travel across Australia and convince people to vote for them. So is it a minimum of 33 days or a maximum? That's a minimum. And a few of the listeners might remember back in 2016, Malcolm Turnbull had an epic six-week campaign. I think the tendency is these days not to do those campaigns. We're obviously going to not get one this time, but they're really expensive. You know, sometimes you'd go to three different states, there's private planes. And once the writs are called, once the election's on, the government can't dip into their own money, the taxpayer money. And that goes for Labor too. Usually if Anthony Albanese was to fly to Brisbane for an event, he'd get what we call TA, which is travel allowance. And he'd say, I'm staying in this hotel and taxpayers fund it. It's how they do their jobs. Once the election's called, the parties have to fund this. So there's really no big incentive to have it a long campaign. That minimum 33 is sort of what we see more of these days. Okay. So you're hinting there that there are a whole different set of rules that exist for politicians in terms of expenses, advertising, where the parliament sits. So what are these key rules that exist during the election campaign official? Look, we don't see parliament sit, obviously, because everybody's fighting for their job. There is technically no parliament. There are some rules around that because sometimes things happen, you know, during these times. You sort of think back to the, the Howard era and there was Tampa just before the election. There are just things that the sort of cogs of government do need to tick over. Expenses is a different one. They're not meant to, I guess, use their 
taxpayer-funded money for campaigns. Now, we have seen, even outside of election times, this pop up from time to time. You might remember there was an ad going around when the vaccine first came out and it had some Liberal Party branding on it and that was quickly taken down. So there are some rules around that. They inevitably will be broken during the campaign. It will come up. Look, there always are cries of foul play. Whether that ever swings an election, I'm not really sure about that. I've seen one interesting attack ad on Labor. There's this big outdoor poster that I've seen on the back of trucks um, saying a vote for Labor is a vote for the Chinese Communist Party. There's a picture of Xi Jinping voting for Labor. Do the rules change during the campaign period? Would an ad like that continue to be allowed? The interesting thing about that is it uh, is apparently getting around um, in a few states now and it's by Advance Australia. Now, they're a conservative group. If you sort of think Get Up is on the left and, and some of the sort of lobby groups on that side, they're definitely on the other side. Now, the AEC were approached about this and they confirmed that they'd had that ticked off. You have to have technically there are advertising rules and you've got to have them ticked off. You've also got to have a disclaimer about who approved it from the party. You know, you hear that bit at the end of the ads where they go approved by Liberal Party Sydney um, so that if there is a complaint, I guess somebody is accountable for that. But in politics, this sort of happens. You might remember Medi-Scare too, where a lot of old people got texts saying, you know, that the Liberal Party are going to privatise the Medi-Scare. They got scared. It was called Medi-Scare and it was said to have swung a number of seats back in 2016. Labor have distanced themselves since then. There's been investigations. Each time we sort of get, I guess, a bit closer to knowing what's right and wrong. But in the sort of heat of the election period, there always are these issues that come up that edge really close to the line. What about spending programs like the sports grants program or the car park programs? There's been conjecture over those. Obviously, there was that moment where in the seat of Mayo, Alexander Downer's daughter, Georgina, who was running there, had a big check for a sporting club. That was government money, not Liberal Party money. That raised lots of concerns. How does this stuff work? Yeah, when we talk about often grants, so um, there are a lot of grants programs, as you say, for sports or for small-scale infrastructure. And often, you know, there's a tender process and you're a local sports club or you're the council and you think, gosh, we need some more parks. We're going to lobby the government and um, put in for one of these. Now, they should just be done on merit. As we know, this hasn't been the case in the past where there's marginal seats and they think, well, this way we can use some taxpayer money to go out and campaign on this. It's been an issue for the coalition over the last few years. They're the ones in governments. So they're sort of handing out the money. There was an investigation by The Age recently, my paper, that showed, I guess, Labor's preference for pork barrelling, which is when you do put money into those marginal seats and you usually get both parties coming in and promising a lot more. Now, is that on need? You know, do the people there need the car park any more than you and I? wherever we live. I don't know. You know, it's hard to tell when it's not the grants program, when it's just election promises. But you do see that this is where the cash is splashed and this is where the leaders will be going. Okay. We've already seen um, recently some hecklers um, getting up in the grill of the Prime Minister uh, in Newcastle, in that tavern, um, calling him the worst PM ever. And then the day before, Anthony Albanese was confronted during a press conference by a guy who wanted to ask a very tough question and then ask whether Albo was up for it and then ultimately was shut down before he got a chance to ask the real <laughs> question. How do the media minders stage manage this stuff during a campaign? I guess how risk adverse are they to it? And do they have to allow some of these interactions to give a sense that our politicians are willing to speak to voters? 
Look, I would say it's incredibly manufactured on both sides. I've um, been on the election campaign um, the last two elections and you basically, in your office at Parliament House, I had a bag packed. I didn't know when the election was going to start and they start, the, you know, the gun to kick off the election and you either jump on a plane with the Prime Minister's crew or with the opposition. I've swapped. I've been with both. They have a private plane that flies ahead. The media follows behind. You don't interact with the public a great deal. So, you know, some days you can wake up in Perth, do a lunchtime event in South Australia, head to Sydney in the afternoon. I can think of one day we did that and then went on to Melbourne. Did we see members of the general public? Sure. Had they been vetted? 100%. Mm. There is not a lot of um, what we call street walks. They are chaotic. I will give you that. I, I remember doing one in Homebush with Malcolm Turnbull and it is nuts. Like sending a prime minister in an election campaign into a Westfield or your mm. local Woolies is, um, I'm not defending them here. They should meet the public, but it is risky. These people could be the leader and are going to be the leader of our country. They do provide the best bit of the campaign, though, I must mm. admit. It's when things go awry that it's bad. And interestingly, when you're on the campaign, they don't tell you where you're going. You sort of pick up little bits of gossip when you're on the bus. And sometimes things get cancelled. You know, you hear you're going to something in the afternoon. I remember in the seat of Lindsay, we were meant to go to a street walk. All of a sudden it was cancelled. So sometimes the parties might get wind that where the other side is going. Sometimes protesters rock up and they'll just go, we're not going to mm. dominate the headlines tonight with the pictures of the Prime Minister or Albo being um, chased down the street. Nobody wants that. So they're very fluid things. They keep it very hush-hush. And a lot of that is to not give away any sort of advantage to the other side so they can man some, you know, troops to send out there to sort of harass different people. But they're the moments when you're on the campaign you're looking for, because beyond that, it's very stage managed. So when I've asked you for a prediction in recent times, you've basically said it's going to narrow, it could go either way, don't write off ScoMo. So to get a bit more specific, we spoke to David Pocock recently, the rugby player who's running for the ACT Senate. And I sort of raised the question with him, well, if Labor or all the coalition have a big majority, you as an independent, you're not going to have that much say unless you're on the crossbench. Now, it does seem to be a major theme this time around. I'd love to know if you see it this way, that there are a stronger field of independence and possibly there could end up being a much bigger crossbench. That alone, let alone the closeness of the two major parties, could mean a big interesting, diverse crossbench actually hold the balance of power in the Senate and the House of Representatives. How likely is that? There is an increasing sort of dissatisfaction with the major parties and you will see more independence. Whether it's just going to be independence winning in every seat they run in, I just don't think that's going to happen because people are still pretty wedded to the major parties. They understand what they stand for, whether they like it or not. They usually know what they're getting. And there just doesn't seem to be this major uprising. In the Senate, where David Pocock is running, is different. We get a lot more crossbenchers up there. Governments rarely have the majority in both houses. So that's where your check and balance comes in. So whether Labor or Liberal win the lower house, there is always the Senate where there is always, it's easier for independents to get up. You have a stranger group of people, but it does mean that legislation sort of has to be tinkered with before it's rubber stamped, which I think is a really good thing. All right, heaps more we can talk about, but now we have the campaign to do that. So we're going to get you on a lot more and um, people will be happy to know and get that sort of great inside knowledge and clear explanations of what can be very confusing and noisy. Annika, great to speak to you. No worries. 
That was the one and only Annika Smithhurst. Now, the other little mechanic that you should keep in mind um, now that the election has been called is that you only get a week to enrol to vote if you haven't already or to change your address, especially if you've moved seats. So make sure you get onto that within the next week. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, Jan Fran sits down with Hannah Gadsby for part one of an incredible two-part interview. Listener.